Well, happy Easter. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Uh, on behalf of the church family, I want to welcome uh, everyone here this morning on our time of worship. I'm Pastor T, along with the brother who led us in the prayer, Pastor Matt and Pastor Jeremy, who's in California this week. We want to welcome you on behalf of the church family uh, in gathering with us and worshiping with us. Uh, we're coming to that part of the service where we look at God's Word, and these brothers in the aisle have Bibles available if you need a Bible. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and uh, they will get one to you. And um, feel free to use that in the service. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. So you can go ahead and turn there. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, let that be our gift to you. We would love for you to take that, make it your own, uh, read it at home, pray through it, uh, study it, and, uh, and, and treasure it and benefit from it. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible of your own, raise your hand. We'd love to give you one and love you to have it. Everybody have a Bible who wishes one? Well, again, to those who are visiting with us this morning, we are so glad that you've chosen to include us in your Easter celebrations. We're so glad that you've come to sing God's praises with us and to consider his word. Uh, there's nothing, this is the high point of our week, is gathering together as his people and singing his praises and hearing his word taught. And so it's a, a treat for us that you would join us and worship with us this way. If you're looking for a church home, we're, we're glad that you've come. We pray that you would consider joining with this family. Let me tell you what we're about. We're about making the message of the gospel clear and spreading it through this community. Uh, we're about showing mercy to our neighbors and friends. We're about maturing and growing as Christians and helping each other to do that. And we're about sending missionaries to the far-off places of the world so that this same kind of work happens in every community among every people uh, around the globe. And so if you're looking for a place where you can take the Bible seriously and you can love people hard and people will love you hard and where you can stumble and grow, uh, along with other people who are stumbling and growing through life, we would love for you to consider uh, Anacostia River Church, and we would love to tell you more about ourselves as a church uh, if you'll stick around after the service. So again, on behalf of the church family, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here this morning. Now, it is our business to consider the Bible, and especially on this Easter Sunday. It is our business to think about that the greatest story ever told. And I recognize that Many people have the question, what is Easter about? And many people have different answers to that question. For some people, Easter is about a pretty dress and a new suit. When I was a little boy, you had to get you a three-button suit and some new shoes and, you know, show up at church and the pastor would see you after service and say, oh, you look like a preacher. That was, that was Easter for me. And after church, Easter was about the basket and the Easter egg hunt, right? And so for many people, that's what Easter is about. Or for some people, Easter is just another day off. It's a long weekend. We're glad to have a day off work to perhaps rest with family or go to a cookout and uh, eat well. And this time of year produces a lot of theories, doesn't it, and ideas about Easter. It seems like everywhere you turn, there's somebody talking about Easter and what it, quote, really means. So some people think that Easter is actually a, a pagan idea. This is something that Christians long ago took from pagan worshipers who were worshiping the sun. And so they see Easter as a conspiracy theory, really. And other people tell us that Easter is about Jesus. 
and what his earthly followers, his first followers, thought of him. But they quickly go on to tell us that the first followers got it wrong, that they were so grief-stricken by his crucifixion that in a kind of mass delusion, they kind of imagined that he was raised from the grave. And for them, that was soothing and comforting after such a, a great loss. It's amazing how many ways there are to not celebrate Easter. How many ways there are to twist its meaning. Or how many ways there are to be religious without really enjoying the Lord. This morning, we're going to continue in our series through Luke's gospel, which we have called Getting to Know Jesus. And in this text of Scripture, I think that's a particularly appropriate series title. Because the burden of this text of Scripture is that we might understand that the greatest thing in the world is to know Jesus, to enjoy him, to be close to him. And dare I say it, that in one sense, that's what Easter is about. God doing everything in the world he needs to do so that the creatures he made who ran away from him in sin might actually be brought back to him and find their joy and satisfaction in him. We celebrate the resurrection because without the resurrection, there is no good news. We're still in our sins, and we are facing a serious judgment. But we also celebrate the resurrection, but because of the resurrection, we live forever with Christ and get to enjoy him now and forevermore. And our text this morning is a meditation on how to do that. Before I read the passage, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, if you're new to the Bible, Luke, uh, when I say Luke, that's a, a book in the New Testament, one of the Gospels. When I say chapter number, chapter 10, that's the big number on the page. And when I say verse number, verse 25, that's the small number. And so from time to time, you'll hear me in a sermon say verse so-and-so or chapter so-and-so. Uh, chapter's the big number, verse is the small number. We're in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, and we'll re read the chapter 11, verse 13. Right, would someone who's using one of those pew Bibles sort of call out a page number for us? 868? All right, so you'll find it on page 868. Now, before I read this section for us, let me give you sort of the, the major idea. There's a word here or synonyms that sort of run through this chapter uh, that put forth the idea of inheritance, an inheritance. We see it there in verse 25. That word is actually used in the question by the lawyer. We'll read this in a moment. We see it another way in verse 42 of chapter 10. When Jesus talks about Martha or Mary choosing the better portion, it's a word that's often synonymous with the word inheritance. And we see the whole idea in Luke 11, 1 to 13, in these frequent references to the Father giving. So, so what's in view here is that there's an inheritance that some are meant to have and to enjoy. Now, there are three major comments running through this chapter that are sort of anchors for us as we think about this inheritance idea, how to get it, how to enjoy it, and what you can expect from it. Notice, first of all, in verse 28. Jesus says to a man who asked him a question, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live is an important statement there, and we'll unpack it in a moment. 
verses 41 and 42, where Jesus talking to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And then at the end of, 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 of verse 13, the end of our section, chapter 11, verse 13, and Jesus says there, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, here's what I want to, how I sort of want to outline this sermon. If you're taking notes, here's the outline. The inheritance that God gives, number one, cannot be earned. Cannot be earned. The inheritance that God gives cannot be earned. Number two, the inheritance that God gives cannot be taken away. Cannot be taken away. And number three, the inheritance that God gives really cannot be imagined. Three, cannot be imagined. All right. Look with me in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. We'll read down to Luke 11, verse 13. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give you, get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is friends, he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. The inheritance that God gives, number one, cannot be earned. That's really the major point that's inferred in this opening exchange between the lawyer and the Lord Jesus. You see there in verse 25, a, a lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. Now, here's a hint. If you're smart and you're going to test Jesus, go ahead and stay seated. You won't have as far to fall, all right? But he stands up and he's going to put Jesus to the test. So we're told here that his motive is not sincere. He's simply playing word games with the Lord. He's trying to trick up the Savior with his question. Now here's the second tip. If you're going to ask the kind of questions that this lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Don't be playing games. That's the question of the universe. It's the most important question anyone could ever ask of the Lord. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life is what many people think of when we use the term heaven. Eternal means forever. This life is a forever life with God. It is life as it was meant to be with God. It is life to the fullest sense possible. And that's, that's what the lawyer is asking about. That, that's the question that should be in the mind of, of every person who will die one day. And that's all of us. What shall I do? to inherit eternal life. And before we think about Jesus' answer, notice one thing about the way the man asked the question. It's that important little word, do. He assumes that there is something in his own ability that he can or must do in order to gain this life. That's a natural way of thinking for many people, isn't it? That to know God or to serve God is to, um, as it were, do a, a number of things. That to, to have God pleased with you is a result of the, the many things you do. To, to sort of have his forgiveness is a kind of bartering where you ask God for forgiveness and you promise to do various things. That's the way the natural mind works. 
Christianity is not a natural religion. It is a supernatural religion. Now, notice how this unfolds. The, the man is a lawyer. In ancient Israel, the lawyers or the scribes were the ones who studied God's law and interpreted it for the people. He's a, he's a teacher of God's word. So Jesus turns the lawyer's question or attention to the law. Notice there in verse 26. This is what is written in the law. How should you read it? We're trying to get to know Jesus, and one of the things you want to recognize as you're getting to know Jesus is Jesus believes the Bible to be God's Word. He believes the law to have been given by God to Israel. And here, the word law refers to all of the Old Testament. It would have been the Bible in his day. And so Jesus thinks that the place you find the answer to the most important question is in the most important book ever written. It's in the Bible. You don't get this answer from philosophy classes. You don't get this answer from your, your partner on the block. You don't get this answer from people just talking in the break room in the workplace. Lots of people have lots of ideas about how to know God and how to live forever, but only one book is the source of the true and accurate answer to the question. Jesus thinks it's the Bible. And if Jesus trusts the Bible, we should trust the Bible. Notice, he turns the lawyer's attention back to the Bible, and then he, he really tests the lawyer to see if the lawyer now understands what he's been studying in his craft. He gives a summary. He asks he asked the question, how do you read the Scripture? What's written in the law? And the lawyer answers in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer's a pretty good lawyer. He quotes from two passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, called the Shema, where Israel as a nation is called to love God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the great commandment. And then he quotes from Leviticus, the, the second commandment, which is like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. All of God's commandments, Jesus says in another place, hangs upon these two laws, love God and love your neighbor. This man's been studying his Bible, and he, he answers, as Jesus says, correctly. He answers correctly. What must you do to, etern to, to gain eternal life? Love God with all your heart and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But there's a twist. There's a problem. Now comes the sharp point of that correct answer. And Jesus says in verse 28, you have cor answered correctly. And you can imagine the lawyer sort of standing up a little straighter and feeling a little bit more confident about himself and a little bit more pleased in his own answer. But Jesus doesn't stop with you have answered correctly. He then says this, do this and you will live. Now I know this must have stung because in the next verse, the lawyer is searching for an excuse. How many of us could say we have at any point loved God this way or loved our neighbors this way? How many of us, if, if our eternal life, if the forgiveness of sins, if living forever with God, if the price of heaven is we perfectly love God and we perfectly loved our neighbors, how many of us think we would pass the test? How many of us think we could? See, there's a real difference between answering correctly theologically and living perfectly practically. 
And this man knows in his head what is the right answer, but he, but he cannot do with his life what is the right answer. We're getting here an illustration of what the Bible says elsewhere, that the law was not given to us for righteousness, but the commands of God were given to us to expose our sin and to lead us to a Savior. This man here is feeling now not only the knowledge of the Scripture, he's feeling now the knowledge of his own heart. He's feeling the guilt and the condemnation of his own heart because notice what he wants to do like a Philadelphia lawyer. Jesus says, go love your neighbor. He says, wait a minute, man, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? You don't mean that buster who's always asking to to borrow sugar, do you? You know? And the question would seem to sort of shrink the idea of neighbor. You see what he says in the text? Wanting to justify himself. He wants to prove that he is righteous on his own terms. He, he wants to have a, a right standing before God based upon his own work, based upon his own merit. Now, to do that, he's got to have a smaller notion of neighbor. And I don't care how he shrinks it. He can shrink it all the way down to self. And he would still fail to keep this law perfectly. But Jesus is wonderful. So you see, the, you see the lawyer's inquiry beginning in verse 25. Now look at the Lord's illustration beginning here in verse 30. Jesus tells a story. So I'll tell you what a neighbor looks like. There was a man going from Georgetown to Anacostia. He got deep in Southeast. And he didn't have no invitation. And some robbers fell among him. They jacked him, they beat him, they left him for dead in the street. Now this Jerusalem road, this Jericho road that Jesus is talking about was a famous road. It was a road that involved some inclines and some dips and had caves along it. It was just a perfect place to be trapping somebody and jacking somebody. And this man got what a lot of people got traveling that road. He got, he got robbed and he got left for dead in the street. And Jesus tells a story now. He's got two religious people in this story. He's got a, a priest and a Levite. That's the religious leadership of Israel. And if you're standing there with Jesus and you're Jewish, you're thinking, okay, here come the heroes of the story. You see what the text says? The priest came along and he saw the man over there bleeding and nearly dead. And he started whistling across the street. And went on his way. The Levite came along, and maybe you're thinking, well, the Levites are, are better at this than the priests, but the Levites see the man beaten and left for dead, and he crossed the street too. Then Jesus mentions a Samaritan. The details of the Bible are important. He specifies this man's ethnic background. He's not Jewish. In fact, he is, in that day, hated by Jewish people. And Samaritans didn't like Jewish people either. There was this real ethnic or, if you will, to use our language, racial conflict between these two groups. Along comes the Samaritan. You you see what the difference is with the Samaritan there? The The Samaritan sees the man. And the Bible says he had compassion. And in that compassion, he didn't cross the street. He goes over to the man. He takes care of the man. He binds up the man's wounds. Then he, then he takes the man and puts him on his own donkey. And he takes the man to a, a hotel, basically. And he gets the man a room. And he gives two denarii uh, to the hotel manager to, to watch after the man for a couple days while he's gone. If you read the text, you'll notice that he spent the night with that man, taking care of his wounds and, and bandaging him up. 
We don't know where he was going, but this wasn't his plan for the day, was it? Out of his own pocket, and out of his own time, he takes care of this man he does not know. It costs to himself. And you see down at the bottom there, Jesus asked the question, which of these men were neighbors? And I imagine now the lawyer is looking in the dust, kind of kicking the sand. And he says, uh, I guess the one who, you know, showed compassion. The lawyer had no idea that Jesus would that day define for him a neighbor as being someone who was racially other from him, in the wrong town, in need, to whom he should make sacrifice. And in this story, this man is now caught up in a bunch of problems, isn't he? Not just the fact that he can't obey God and love God fully and therefore earn his salvation, but now he's being made aware of other sins. And this is what the law does. He's been made aware, also had no idea that he was talking in that moment to the greatest neighbor he would ever meet. The Lord Jesus Christ who left heaven, who left glory and clothed himself in our humanity, who demonstrated this same kind of compassion. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, busted and bleeding and broken in our sin, Christ died for us. He paid the ultimate price for us. Not a couple of coins to an innkeeper, but he paid with his life, with his very own blood to God the Father so that the wrath of God would be satisfied and turned away from us. And three days later, he rose again from the grave, sort of like this innkeeper who said, I'll be back and, and I'll cover whatever else he owes. And, and so it is with Christ. Right now, he sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us, praying for us, watching over us. And he has promised to come back again and to gather us. And we know he's coming because he got up the first time. He's alive. He is risen. And he has a people for whom he has purchased with his own blood and paid with his blood the debt of all their sins. And a people he's healing and beautifying and cleansing and making his own. And he gives to the world the hope of this eternal life. Not based on anything that we do, for we have broken the law into a thousand pieces. But he gives himself so that based upon what he has done, his perfect obedience to God, his complete and perfect love for God and love for neighbor, based upon that, those who repent of their sins and trust in him receive the gift of eternal life, receive this inheritance, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. And that's why it's good news. Jesus, the perfect one, has accomplished it. We receive it by repenting from sin and trusting in him. The inheritance that God gives, we cannot earn. And yet this call in this story lies upon all of us, doesn't it? This very text has been one of the motivating texts for, for our life as a church, for our living in the community as a church. We, we want to be a church that's in the community, for the community, made up of the community. Why? That we might be good Samaritans in the community. 
that we might be like this man who lays down his life for a moment to, to show mercy and compassion to those who are in need. And I love this church. And I love the way this body of people models this so much. The number of you who are crossing cultural and ethnic lines to be a part of a community, to bear witness to the gospel, and to help those who are in need. I'll just say to my African-American brothers and sisters, um, we, we have white and Hispanic and Asian and Filipino brothers and sisters among us who, who struggle with something many of us have struggled with when we have been in predominantly white settings. You, you know that cost you pay, that insecurity you feel, the ways in which you sometimes are uncertain about your presence and how well it's received? We got white brothers and sisters who feel that way, and Asian and Hispanic brothers and sisters who feel that way. And it's our task as Samaritans to, to cross the bridge and to assure them and to love them and encourage them. This is a, it's been their task to cross the bridge and to do this in a community that, that maybe wasn't their own. And beloved, we have in this church people from every walk of life, from homeless persons to persons who are literally K Street lawyers. We have people all the way across the sort of economic scale, and that's by God's design. When you read James chapter 2, what does he say to James there? There's to be no, no favoritism, no partiality, but, but there's to be this equal love, each for the other. That's another divide we have to cross, isn't it? The ways in which the world will take class and divide people, not so in the church of Christ. We lay that down, too, in order to be equal at the cross. We have an equal need for the Savior. And we do that collectively to be on mission together, to make the message of the gospel known. People need to know they cannot inherit or earn eternal life. They must trust Christ. And we do this together to make the mercy of God seen and visible and known to our neighbors as we see them in need and as we, as we serve their needs. So for those of us who have received this life, but look there at verse, the last verse in that section, verse 37. The Lord said, or the man, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy, that's the neighbor. And Jesus said to him, and he says to us now, not as a way of earning his salvation, but as a way of living it out, go and do likewise. That's why we're here. We're here to obey this command, to go and likewise show mercy to our neighbor in the proclamation of the gospel and in the meeting of tangible need. And so the question comes before us, are we committed to doing this? I assume we are. So a second question is, how can we, in our own lanes, in our own spots, with the resources the Lord has given us, how can we individually and collectively obey the Lord's word here to go and do likewise? Maybe that's a good conversation to have over an Easter meal this afternoon. The salvation that Christ gives, the eternal life that is available to us, it cannot be earned. But notice the second thing, it cannot be taken away. It cannot be taken away. That's what we see in that short, short section in verses 38 to 42. Look there with me as I read this text again. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. 
And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away. The first thing I want to sort of observe about this text, which probably seems like nothing in our cultural day, but Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, is in a woman's home with a woman sitting at his feet learning from him and enjoying the hospitality of another. You go, what's the big deal? This would never have happened with a Jewish rabbi in Jesus' day. That he has this conversation, that he accepts this hospitality, that from the beginning among his disciples were women is radical. So if the parable of the Good Samaritan is a spear through the heart of any ethnic hostility and any ethnic prejudice or any racism, then this little section right here is a spear through the heart of any sexism among us, any mistreatment or devaluing of women in the church and in the world. Right from the beginning, the Lord includes and loves women disciples. So he's in Martha's house. Excuse me. Yeah, Martha's house. Mary's at his feet, verse 39 tells us, listening to his teaching. Meanwhile, verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. Anybody know sisters like this? Anybody know women with a problem like this? Put them on blast right here. I watch my daughters argue almost every day about who turn it is to wash the dishes. One of them's supposed to unload, and the other one's supposed to load and turn the thing on, and, and the other one's supposed to unpack it. And I don't, I don't know what their system is, but it ain't working because they argue every day. And I mean, by the time they finish arguing, I'm like, I could have washed them dishes by hand by now. You know what I mean? But here they are, Mary and Martha, just chip, 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 you know. And here they are, these two sisters here in the house, kind of one sitting at the Lord's feet and the other a little bit vexed. And, and you can see it, can't you? Sort of dish towel in one hand, pointing at Jesus, the other hand on the hips about, you know, you don't care nobody helping me in here. I'm in here cooking all this food. Why don't you tell her to get up and help me? Y'all know how that go. Y'all know how that go. I even saw some sisters doing the neck roll better than I was, right? Y'all know how that go. Now, now, verse 40 strikes me for a number of reasons now. You know, Martha goes to Jesus, and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Again, you probably met Martha before, haven't you? She's kind of happy to serve, but she's a little happier complaining. You know, I, you know, I'm doing this. Nobody helps me the way I need to be helped, and other people need to help, and you're like, well, why are you in here then? Go out there and sit out there with everybody else, right? And, and, and you've probably met this Martha, too, who, who's a little bossy, or this Mary, this Martha who's a little bossy. So, so not only is she, you know, bold enough to go up into the Lord's face and say, don't you care, <laughs> but then to tell him to tell Mary, come help me. <laughs> Good night. And most striking of all about that sentence is just that little phrase, do you not care? Do you not care? I imagine 
though we've been joking at her expense a little bit, in all seriousness, that there are a lot of women who feel like Martha. Don't get enough help at home. Don't get enough thanks for what they do. Wondering if anybody cares. And sometimes at the most profound level, wondering if God cares. Routine never ends. Up before everybody else in the house, he's still snoring, she gets up. We're up early in the house and there is no he. Kids have got to be awakened for school. They've got to be ushered into the showers. Breakfast has to be put on the table. Book bags have to be inspected. And you've got to walk them to school or get them in the car and drive them to school. And you've got to do all that in time enough to, with time enough both to get yourself together and get out of the house. Because when you drop them off, you've got to go to work. That's your first job. There's a second job later that day. And then you've got to do the sort of back end of that. You've got to hustle back to get them from school or from their after-school program. And, and you've got to get dinner on the table. You've got to, in somewhere in there, sort of check homework and instruct in homework. And, and it's not to mention you've got to squeeze in discipline and correction and instruction of the kids. And all the while you're feeling like it's only your responsibility. You're the only one. And he hasn't said thank you nearly enough. And he hasn't helped nearly enough. And nobody else seems to notice. And you're just exhausted. My wife describes housework like putting pearls on a string with no knot on the bottom. Just constantly dropping those pearls on that string, never ending up with a necklace, it seems. Judith Warner is a sociologist. She wrote a book called Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety. I bought the book. Sometimes you buy a book just because of how it's described on the jacket cover. I bought the book because I read these two paragraphs, but I want to read to you now. It says, this book is an exploration of a feeling, that caught-by-the-throat feeling so many mothers have today, of always doing something wrong. And it's about a conviction I have that this feeling, this widespread choking cocktail of guilt and anxiety and resentment and regret is poisoning motherhood for American women today, lowering our horizons and limiting our minds, sapping energy that we should have for ourselves and our children and drowning out thoughts that might lead us collectively to formulate solutions. The feeling has many faces but it doesn't really have a name. It's not depression. It's not oppression. It's a mix of things, a kind of too muchness, an existential discomfort, a mess. I think she's spot on in describing that too muchness and messiness for a lot of women. What's the answer to that too muchness? Martha thinks the answer is to get more help. But Jesus gives a different answer. Look in verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing 
is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So though the Lord says to Martha and to women, and by the way, and to men everywhere, in all of your busyness, don't forget that the only thing that is necessary is sitting with me. That one thing is not the next task on your to-do list. That one thing is not even serving others as much as that is valued and wonderful and to be done. The one thing that is necessary is enjoying the Lord himself. And this is why he purchases us for eternal life. This is why he buys us with his blood that we might be his own so that we might enjoy him. And that's what Mary chose. The Lord calls it the good portion. And notice, it will not be taken away from her. How sweet is that? The use of the word portion is interesting. It's related to the lawyer's use of inheritance back up in verse 25. Throughout the Bible, God says that he himself is the portion or the inheritance of his people. You might write a couple of verses down, Psalm 73, verse 26, where David cries out there, Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth there is none I desire besides you. You remember what he says? My, my strength and my heart may fail, but it resolves this. But the Lord is my strength and my portion forever. My inheritance forever. Well, those well-known words in Lamentations chapter 3, we, we got a whole hymn uh, sort of inspired by it. Great is our faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22 to 24, it says this, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. That's beautiful. For his compassions never fail. He's the good neighbor. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Then verse 24 says this, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. You see how that works? The, the, Lord is, the Lord is matchless in his love. His love is great for us. And because of his love, we have not been consumed in judgment. We have not been consumed by the busyness of this world because of his great love. And, and his love and his mercies are new every morning. You never run out of the mercy of God. It springs fresh every morning you wake up. You wake up in the morning, you just say, mmm, fresh mercy. Fresh mercy every morning. And here's the resolution. The writer there, Jeremiah, who's always weeping about something, says this. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. And that's what's going on in Mary's heart. She has glimpsed Jesus and gotten to know him. Oh, just enough to know that he is her portion. And she will wait at his feet. Why did God save you? So you could enjoy him. So you could know him. So that you could be with him. And so that you could declare along with all the saints of the Bible, he is my portion. You know something beautiful? Deuteronomy 32 around verse 9, the Lord says this. The Lord says, my people are my portion. We, we inherit him and he inherits us. We delight in him and he delights over us. His banner over us is love. Zephaniah says he, he breaks out in singing over those who he saved. Here's what I have to remember. I, I, 
So I have to preach a preacher. You know, he's preaching to himself too. When I wake up in the morning, I got to remember to say, mm, fresh mercy. And with that mercy, I've got to say the one necessary thing is for me to meet with you, Lord, to come close to you. I'm going to be late to work this morning. The kid's going to be late to school. Or they're going to have to eat Pop-Tarts. But this morning, for some time at least, I got to enjoy you as my portion. And I, I want to offer myself up to you as your portion. That we might enjoy this sweet fellowship between the Savior and the saved. And it's a tragedy, beloved. I have to confess it in my own life far too often. Maybe this is true of you too, and, and maybe we as a church can be repenting of this together, but it's a tragedy that far too often I'm not sitting at his feet. I'm not pushing back on the busyness of the world. I'm not pushing back on the Marthas. I'm not pushing back on Christy when she asks for help. Just say, hey, give me 10 minutes or 15. Let me sit with the Lord for a minute. How many of you know that when you begin your day that way, the whole day is different? The whole day is different. And you skip that, the whole day is different. So let us be a people who enjoy the salvation Christ has purchased for us. And let us do it with all the confidence that comes from the last few words of verse 42. It will not be taken away from us. Nothing will take you away from God's love. What does Jesus say? No one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. What does Paul say in Romans? Nothing will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not famine, not sword, not persecution, not anything, not death, not life, not heights, not, nothing, beloved. If you are Christ, nothing will separate you from his love. So committed is he to you enjoying his love and, and he enjoying us that he has pledged over and over in his word, nothing will remove you from his love. Go enjoy it. Go sit at his feet. Go drink in his teaching. Go linger over his word until your soul and my soul delights in the Lord. And we have renewed the joy of his salvation. Can I be a quick exhortation to husbands among us? One of the best ways you can love your wife is to make sure she has time for a quiet time. Do whatever you have to do to rearrange the family schedule. Do whatever you have to do to rearrange your sleep schedule. Do whatever you have to do to train the children that she might be able to get that time with the Lord. It's one of the best ways we can lead our wives is by making sure they have adequate time to sit like Mary at the Lord's feet. I love the story of Susanna Wesley who had like 19 children. Can you imagine? I know, ooh. She had 19 children. Praise God. It's an inheritance from the Lord, but I'm not sure I can stand to be that rich. You know, it's a, it's a blessing though, right? She got 19 kids. And the story's told that the kids knew that she had a chair, a favorite chair that she would sometimes go sit in and she would take her apron and flip it up over her head. And the kids knew that when she had her apron flipped over her head, she was trying to get a little rest with the Lord and, and, and not to bother that. You know, figure out your metaphorical apron, Right? And let's all be sort of about the business of sitting at his feet, pressing out the urgent, 
practicing a little, neglect, a little benign neglect of things that can be neglected in order to sort of press into the more important thing of communion with Christ. This salvation, this inheritance cannot be earned. It cannot be taken away. Finally, it cannot be imagined. It cannot be imagined. Verse 1 of chapter 11 tells us that Jesus was praying in a certain place. You see, this was, the, this was the Savior's habit, too, to sort of draw away alone and to go to the Father in prayer. He did that often. The disciples see him, and they ask the Lord, teach us to pray. And that request now, Lord, teach us to pray, I find it encouraging because it means that prayer is not something you should automatically know how to do. It's also one of the things we get taught as disciples, right? Uh, and, and, and so they come to the Lord and they say, teach us, to, teach us to pray. Teach us how to seek God and to talk with God. And there's no shame in that request. There's only shame if you don't ask, if you know that you need encouragement in this way. And the Lord responds to this prayer, first, or this request. First of all, he explains the pattern of prayer in verses 2 to 4. The pattern of prayer. Luke gives us an abbreviated version of what we've come to call the, the Lord's Prayer, but it's really, a, it's really a pattern. It really models how disciples ought to pray. They are to address, we are to address God as our Father. Notice there, the same word that we get translated Abba, from which we get the word Daddy. It's that idea. So prayer is something that happens between a father and his children. It's a family conversation. There's to be intimacy in it. And they're to ask two things related to God. Number one, that his name be hallowed. You see that there? And number two, that his kingdom come. They're to pray that God's name would be holy and revered. That's what hallowed means. It is to respect God, that all the nations of the earth would respect him, would fear him, would reverence him. They pray for the fear of the Lord to grip men's hearts. And they pray for his kingdom to come. That's a prayer for the, the fullness of this eternal life, which we get by repentance and faith, to, to finally be ushered in in its, in its fullness, and God's kingdom to be, to be consummated, and the end of all things to, to come, and the beginning of eternity to come. Then they had to ask three things for themselves. Their daily bread, the forgiveness of their sins, and protection from temptation. And all of their needs for daily provision and in their spiritual needs, their ongoing fight with sin and in their fight against the evil one and the temptation that he puts in the world, they are to, we are to go to God as our Father and ask him for help, to depend upon him in prayer. That's the pattern. But notice now he also emphasizes persistence in prayer. You see that in verses 5 to 10. This persistence in prayer. Just having a pattern isn't enough if you never pray it. And Jesus gives us the sense here that we are to pray it relentlessly, really. Look at verse 5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he, that friend, will answer him from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, maybe if we sort of bring that up to date, that, that analogy will be fresh. It's like you laying in bed sleep. The phone rings. 
and you barely get one eye open, and the first thing you look at is what? The clock. What time is it? One o'clock in the morning. Who calling at one o'clock in the morning? And you roll over. A few minutes later, the phone ring again, and you, this time, check caller ID, and it's your friend. I ain't messing with him tonight. I ain't messing with him. It's late. You put the phone back down. By the third or the fourth time, it's ringing. You're thinking, I need to answer this phone. This man ain't going to leave me alone. It's that kind of impudence, that kind of persistence in prayer that God is, is teaching us to have, to go to him and to keep going to him and to, to keep pleading with him, and, and he will answer, just like that friend who didn't want to get up out of bed and answer the phone or come to the door. We'll come to the door if you keep ringing the bell or ringing the phone. So it is with God. He gives another parable that teaches much the same thing. And then he says this in verses 8 and 9. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs just to get him away. In verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Well, what you need to know about those verbs, ask, seek, and knock, they're all present continuous tense. These are all things that we're to start and to continue doing in prayer. Seek the Lord. Beseech his throne. Knock on his doors. Ring his ear. Call out to him. And not because he's deaf and not because he doesn't want to hear, but so that we might press into him and have our desires through prayer conform to his will. You see that there? The pattern of prayer persistence in prayer. I've noticed the, the provision of prayer in verses 11 to 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? I think I know some dads like that. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's that dad, that, that sort of grandfather, like that pull my finger grandfather. You know, always got a practical joke. There are some out there like that, but what good father <laughs> among us would see a request from our child for fish and we give them a serpent or an egg and we give them scorpion. No, no one's going to, no father is going to treat their child with such scorn. And notice here what Jesus says in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Now, the other gospel writers say this, how much more will your father give good gifts to his children? Luke here does something different. He, he zeroes in particularly on that best gift, the Holy Spirit. If you're new to Christianity, one of the most fundamental things to understand about the Christian faith is that God reveals himself in the Bible as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this very text is very Trinitarian, isn't it? You see the Father being prayed to, Jesus here teaching us how to pray, and the outcome of that prayer being the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him. What does that mean? People debate these kinds of things and write endless books on these things, but let me give you what I think is the simplest meaning. If you ask, God will give himself to you. This is God the Holy Spirit the third person in the Trinity, fully God, just like the Son and the Father. 
whose ministry it is to comfort us, whose ministry it is to seal us, to stamp us as belonging to God until the final day when God's kingdom comes, who gives us gifts for serving the church and who gives us strength and boldness to witness to Christ, who is God in us. That's an amazing thing. When we talk with you about becoming a Christian, we are not simply talking with you about changing your religion or becoming more religious or joining this church. When we talk with you about becoming a Christian, what we hope you see is we're actually talking about you being joined together with God, united with him in love, united with him in the power and the fellowship of his spirit. An amazing thing happens when a person confesses their sin and turns to God in faith. In fact, it happens right before they confess and turn. God comes into their life. Not in some general way that he's involved in everybody's life, but in this profound spiritual way. The spirit of God gives a person a new heart and in that gift of a new heart gives them the grace to repent and believe and takes up permanent residence in them and with them. This is why eternal life is eternal. If your life is joined with God's, it could never end. And this is why eternal life is so sweet. If the Spirit of God lives in you, you constantly get to fellowship with Him. When we say come and follow Jesus, We're not just trying to be self-righteous or we're not just trying to win more people to church membership. We say come and follow Jesus. We're saying come and know God. Be known by him. Belong to him. And enjoy him forever. I don't have a better offer to make you. And apparently Jesus thinks there's no better answer to your prayer. He says, keep asking, keep asking, keep asking, and the Father will give you his spirit. God will give you himself for your enjoyment. Christian, this has already happened to us, and it is for us this Easter and every day to enjoy our Savior. He purchased our salvation on the cross and in the resurrection, He provides for us in everything. And he calls us to come sit at his feet in the power of the Spirit. So my friend, if you're not yet a Christian, you can be. Call upon the name of the Lord so that you might be saved. Keep calling upon the name of the Lord until you're sure you're saved. If you ask him, the Lord will give himself to you. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for these unimaginable things. That sinners though we all are, you love us. And as alone as we all sometimes feel, as busy as we all sometimes get, 
you call us to come sit at your feet. And in a world that seems to have so much loss, you offer yourself to us to enjoy and to be with us forevermore. Well, we pray that you would help our hearts to lay hold to these promises, lay hold to this life which is truly life and to enjoy it to the full just as you have planned. We pray that you would give faith to someone who came this morning who did not have it. And we pray that you would strengthen the faith of all of those who do. Let us trust you, one and all. Let us trust your Son, risen from the grave, for our salvation. And let us follow him until he comes again. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.